0: Um, Turn with me to Romans 1, please. Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. Paul. to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we do ask as we come before you and are examined by your word, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand it and to be those who love it. Lord, to be repentant before you. And Lord, that you would help us to rejoice in you tonight. Help us to just see you, Jesus, for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, many today, in our day and age, define the gospel in in various sorts of ways. The gospel is seen as a message by some that can help you feel better, right? Or maybe more significant. It's about, for some, how God has gone the extra mile to bring you a message of self-affirmation. For some, the gospel is seen as good for us Christians, but there's good news in other religions also. Right? Because I've heard all this. However, we need to understand that Jesus is the only good news. Jesus is the gospel. Apart from Christ, there is no Christianity. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have Christ. When speaking of the text that I'm going to look at today in Romans 1-3, John Calvin said this, This is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that the whole gospel is included in Christ. So that if anyone removes one step from Christ, he withdraws himself from the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking of the same passage, said this, there is no such thing as Christianity apart from the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That does not mean that the Lord Jesus Christ is a bearer of good news from God. No, it means that He Himself is the good news. So you can have Buddhism without Buddha or Confucianism without Confucius. You can have Mormonism without Joseph Smith. And you can have Islam Without Muhammad, they are merely messengers of their respective gospels. However, you cannot have Christianity without Jesus because he is no mere messenger of the good news. He is the good news. Jesus Christ is the gospel and only in seeing and savoring him for who he is, can you be saved? Hear that? Jesus is the message. He is the good news. And only those who see him and savor him for who he is are saved. Today I want to show you first that Jesus Christ is the gospel. Second, I want you to see that Jesus Christ was eternally preexistent as the Son of God. And third, I want to show you that salvation is found only in seeing and savoring Jesus as He's truly portrayed in the Scriptures. So look with me at Romans chapter 1, verse 1, which is an interesting place to start because you know we've been there before. But right at the get-go, Paul starts off with this, says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, he can barely begin his letter before he runs headlong into announcing that his Master is Christ Jesus. He's just getting started and he has to go right to that. My master is Christ Jesus. He announces us, he announces to us that he has been called to be an apostle. Apostle what? A messenger of this gospel about Christ Jesus. He then tells us he's been set apart by God for the gospel of God. Last week I told you that the gospel of God, that little phrase can be taken three ways. First, it can be taken subjectively. In other words, it is the gospel from God. He's the source of it. Second, it could be taken objectively. Or in other words, the gospel is about God. It's the gospel about God. He is the content or the focus of it. Or the third way that I said it could be taken is that both things are true. He is both the messenger of it. He is the source of it, and he is also the content of it. And I believe that Paul is demonstrating that God is both the source of the gospel and that he himself is the good news. It is clear in verse 2 that God is a source of the gospel. Listen, he says the gospel of God, and then verse 2, look which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which we looked at last week, and we said it went all the way back, this promise went all the way back to the fall, when the curse happens, and in the midst of the curse, God announces his grace in the promise of sending a Messiah, Genesis 3.15. He is the source of this gospel, but he is also the content of it. He is also the content of it. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son. That's all I'm really preaching on this week. Those three words. Concerning his son. It's the gospel of God. Grammatically, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand concerning his son. He's both the source of it and he is the content of it. He is the good news. Over the next three messages, I want to establish that God, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, is the content or focus of the good news. So you might call this, The Gospel is Jesus Christ, Part 1. Right? Next time you know what the title of the sermon will be. The Gospel is Jesus Christ, Part 2. Verse 3, it begins with concerning his son... And Paul goes on to tell us that God sent his eternal son to be a man, our suffering Messiah. Continue to look at verse 3. Begins with concerning his son, and then he goes on and says this. Who was descended from David according to the flesh? Speaking of Jesus, he was descended from David according to the flesh. This is speaking of him both as a man and as the Messiah. Specifically the suffering Messiah, which Paul preaches about in Acts and which we'll pick up on next time we meet. And then it goes on in verse 4 and says, And, speaking of the Son, And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. He is not only a man and the Messiah, He is also the eternal Son of God who is with us and the exalted Lord. He is both the God-man and the suffering Messiah and exalted Lord. He's both of those things. I know you just said there's four things there, right? But if I'm bracketing those two concepts together, he's both of those things. And Paul's telling us all this in two verses. It's a lot to lay out, but look at the, He finishes it, and it brackets this section. finishes with this in verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That, those two things are bracketed. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. They're parallels. Everything else is coming in between them. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ, the eternally pre-existent Son, the God-Man, the suffering Messiah and exalted Lord is the good news. So He's telling us in these two verses. Paul goes on in verse 6 to say that the Roman Christians belong to Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 6 including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, he gives them a blessing of grace and peace from not only the Father, but from Jesus Christ, thus ascribing to Jesus equality with God the Father. If you look at verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He has this incredibly high announcement of who Christ is, and he wants to center his reader's attention on Jesus If I gave you a brief outline of what Paul declares about Jesus in verses 1 through 7, this is what it would sound like. Listen to this. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus in these first seven verses. Jesus is Paul's master, for whom Paul is called to be a messenger in verse 1. He is the good news that Paul is set apart for in verse 1 and 3. Because He is the Gospel, He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises in verse 2. He is the eternally existent Son in verse 3a. He became fully man in order to be the promised suffering Messiah in verse 3b. He's also fully God and was declared to be the promised exalted Lord by His resurrection from the dead in verse 4. He is Jesus Messiah, by the way, Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, our Lord, which is the word that's used of Yahweh in the Old Testament. He is the one through whom Paul is called by grace to be an apostle in verse 5. Jesus is the one whom Paul wants to bring every nation to the obedience of faith for. In verse 5. He is the one whom Paul wants to make famous among all nations in verse 5. He is the one the Romans and all other Christians have been called to belong to. Verse 6. Jesus' name is equivalent to the Father in offering us the Old Testament blessing of peace and the New Testament blessing of grace in verse 7. In seven verses, Paul gives us one of the greatest Christological passages in all of Scripture. And he starts his letter this way because for 11 chapters, he's going to go on and describe the gospel to us, but he does not want us to forget that at the very center of that, he is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the good news that is Jesus that he's preaching. And how we appropriate that to ourselves. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Paul clearly tells us that Jesus, that he's preaching the gospel of Christ in multiple other passages. Look down at Romans 1 verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of what? His Son. Turn with me to Romans 15. Romans 15. <clears throat> and verse 19. <clears throat> he's talking about how he's going around preaching. And he says this, By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Lyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of what? The gospel of Christ. Romans 16, go to the next chapter, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, my gospel being the gospel that Paul is preaching, listen, and the preaching of who? Jesus Christ. Those are parallel concepts. When he is proclaiming his gospel, he is preaching who? Jesus Christ, that's who I'm preaching when I'm proclaiming to you the gospel. He is the center of it. He is the good news. He is whom I'm preaching when I preach the gospel. He says the same thing in several other passages. You don't have to turn, just listen. In 1 Corinthians 9.12, he says, But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of christ even though a door was open for me in the lord and he goes on in second timothy 1 eight, he says this therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our lord what's his testimony it's about who our lord jesus christ nor of me as prisoner but chair in suffering for the gospel by the power of god so as we learn this incredible truth that jesus christ is the good news I want to begin by helping us to understand that the first great truth that Paul gives us with regard to the person of Jesus Christ in this passage is that he's eternally preexistent. The first great truth that he gives us in this passage in Romans 1, 3 is that Christ is eternally preexistent. He wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is himself God and thus deserving of being the good news. He has always existed as God. He was with God when he walked. He was God when he walked the earth and he is God now in heaven. But some deny that Jesus Christ always existed as the son of God. Those who deny that are heretics. False teachers. I don't mean by this that Jesus Christ, the man, existed prior to his conception and birth. I don't mean that, but I mean that the person of the son of God who took on flesh, that person of the son of God who took on flesh was eternally preexistent before he became a man. He has always been. The heresy that this isn't true is taught in several variations historically. Historically, some say Jesus is no more a son of God than you and I are. That's taught in a lot of mainline denominations today. Jesus Christ is a son of God, but no more a son of God than you or I. Second one, it pops up. Jesus, some say that Jesus is the son of God in a special way, but he is not co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He's special. He's better than us. But he's not co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. That's what some argue. Third thing that some say is that Jesus was adopted... Into the Godhead at his resurrection. So there was just one God, the Father, and when Jesus lived this perfect life and rose again, he was adopted into the Godhead. So now you had kind of a binity, and at some point they may have adopted a Trinity. The third, I don't know. But that's kind of where they had, that's where they were. Fourth, and this has been popular even in recent times, um, even in evangelical churches, some say there was there was the second person of the Trinity. Always. There's always been the second person in the Trinity. But he became the Son of God when he became incarnate. So he was not the Son of God until the incarnation. That's wrong. It's incorrect. The scripture is clear that Jesus Christ is and always has been the Son of God. He was the Son of God prior to his incarnation. He still is the Son of God. I want to establish the, pre- the eternal preexistence of Jesus The Son of God with four lines of evidence, okay? Now we're going to get into some theology. The eternal preexistence of the Son of God. Four lines of evidence. First, and this is all one line, by the way. He is God who was with God, present before all things. He is God who was with God, present before all things. Look with me first at John 1. John chapter 1. Some of you probably thought I was immediately going there as soon as you heard me say that. John chapter one. In the beginning, verse one, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you go to verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus. The beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Get to Romans, then 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 15, he, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. This takes us back to the Genesis narrative, by the way, as does John 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, the firstborn doesn't mean there that he was the first one to have be physically generated from God. The firstborn, prototokos is the idea of he has supreme over all creation. It speaks of his supremacy, not of his birth order. He's supreme over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him All things hold together. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1. Long ago... He's speaking about the angels and the sun. He says, I don't say these things about the angels, but I do say this about the sun. Look at verse 8. But of the sun, he says, your throne. Listen to this. Of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Now I'm going to jump you all the way back into the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6. If you were with me at Bass Lake this summer, you heard me go through this passage. I want to talk about the, the vision that Isaiah saw. In the year that King Uzziah died, Verse 1 of Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. By the way, just to stop for a second so you understand the imagery. King Uzziah was a very beloved king of Israel at this time. So when he dies in that year, the people are just shaken. What now? What does the future hold? They're trusting in this man. And in the midst of their king just having died, Isaiah sees a vision, and what does he see in the vision? I saw the Lord seated on a throne. What's he saying? Our king has died, but our real king is still on the throne. And he goes on, he says, High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face because he could not look directly on the glory of God. And with two, he covered his feet because he was unworthy. And with two, he flew, speaking of his service to God. And it says this, and one called to another, these angels are shouting in heaven, one to another saying, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know what's amazing about this passage? When we read it, we think Isaiah seeing the Father. Right? That's what we normally think of, right? Turn back to John, chapter 12. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking in chapter 12 about why certain people have rejected him. Why have certain people rejected Him? And He's speaking about it. And He says in this passage, quoting Isaiah, that God has hardened their hearts. And He's closed their eyes. And He's made it so that they can't hear, lest they turn and be healed. He's hardened them so that they cannot repent. As He quotes from Isaiah. And Jesus says, therefore, verse 39, Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them in verse 40. And then look at verse 41 of John chapter 12. Isaiah said these things. Because he saw his glory. He's talking about Jesus. And spoke of him. He saw the glory of the son of God. in Isaiah six. Not only is he, God, is he God with God, present before all things, he is the one toward whom all time was moving. Right? All of time was moving toward him at the first advent. The first advent we call normally now Christmas. Right, Everything was moving toward the coming day when he would be born. All of history was coming toward the first advent. And Paul speaks of it actually as the fullness of time arrived when Jesus came. All of history was going to that day. All of it pointed there. Not only is he the one toward whom all time was moving, he is still the one toward whom all time is moving. As we wait the second advent, the return of Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to have you jumping around a little bit. So, Ephesians chapter 1. Speaking of Christ, the fact that all of time is moving toward Him, toward His first coming. He says this in verse 7. In Him, that's in Jesus, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace. Listen to this which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. Listen, when Christ arrived and lived and died, God made known to us in that the mystery of His will. He made it known. And all of time was waiting for that. Verse ten, the full which he set forth in Christ. And look at verse ten as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything is to be united in Christ, the Son of God. In Galatians four four, we pick up the same thing. Just go back one book, closer to Romans. Galatians four four. He's speaking of the fact that we were children following the elementary principles of the world at one time. And in verse 4 of Galatians 4, he says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Why? To unite all things in him. That was the plan. Not only is he God with God present before all things, not only is the, he the one toward whom all time was moving and continues to move, he was sent. He was sent by God. The son was sent. And in order to be sent, he had to be before, right? He had to have been the son to be sent beforehand. In verse 4, he says, God sent his son of Galatians 4, right? In Romans 8.3, turn back to Romans 8.3. Romans 8.3, this comes up again. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How? How has God done it? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. He's done it by sending His own Son. Sending His own Son. And I'll read this last one from John 1. You don't have to turn there, but it's the end of one fourteen where it says, and He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, listen... Speaking of the Word of God, of the Son of God, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Only Son from the Father. Fourth, He is the one in whom God gave us grace from eternity. Listen to this He is the one in whom God gave us grace from eternity. Look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. It's right after 1 Timothy, <laughs> after 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'll start in verse 8. Therefore, Paul's speaking to Timothy, by the way. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Again, here it comes up, right? Preaching of Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And listen, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He gave us His grace in Christ before the ages began. Look at Titus 1-2. Just one book over from there. I'll start in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Hear that? In the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Grace was given us in Christ before the beginning of time. That's why salvation can be found in no one else. can be found in no one else. Those who claim otherwise are ripping the Christ out of Christianity. And inventing some moralistic, humanistic religion that has no understanding of the God whom we are worshiping. The sad part is that so many Christians or people who say they're Christians say they want to go to heaven. However, they don't want Jesus for who he is. They don't want the Jesus of the Bible. They want the Jesus of their own imagination. For them, Jesus is not the good news. The good news is seeing their family members in heaven. The good news is seeing their dog in heaven. The good news is that they can be forgiven and experience endless gulf in heaven or have some kind of eternal bliss. Jesus is not what they want. Jesus for them is not the good news. However, we must understand That salvation is only found in seeing and savoring Jesus for who he is. That's what Satan blinds the world from. You know that? What we're talking about is what Satan blinds the world from. He doesn't want them to see and desire Jesus. He wants them to rejoice in or hope in something or someone else. There's nothing supernatural about wanting to avoid hell, is there? Who wants to go there? There's nothing supernatural about wanting to be forgiven or about wanting to go to heaven and see loved ones. Nothing supernatural about that. There's nothing supernatural about wanting the blessings of Jesus. Nothing. However, to see the glory of Christ... To see him as your good news. To desire him above all else. That is a supernatural work of God. That is a seeing and savoring. That is saving. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll conclude with this passage. Paul's talking about the ministry he has. Look at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, (laughs) we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He goes on and says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. How so? What's He blinded their minds from? To keep them from seeing the light. What light? What light does he not want them to see the light of the gospel, the gospel of what the good news of what of the glory of Christ. Verse five, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the gospel. He is our good news. I pray that if you have not seen Jesus as your good news, God will open your eyes to see him pray that I pray for those of us who have had our eyes opened that we will continue to see him in all his glory and that seeing him in all his glory we will proclaim him and his glory in all things for the joy of all peoples in case you need a reminder lest you need a reminder of how Quickly, we turn from being about the love of Christ and the love of beholding Him in His glory. Though only in a glass darkly now, when our eyes close in death, we will see Him fully. In case you have lost that sense of desire to pursue Him, I want to read a passage to you so often reminds me of how I lose my sense of what Christianity is about. John has a revelation while he's on the island of Patmos. And in that revelation, he writes seven letters to seven churches. And the first one he writes to the church at Ephesus when he writes to the church at Ephesus, and he says this to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the angel, by the way, is the messenger to the church at Ephesus. Write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars, by the way, are the seven messengers of the seven churches, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So these are the words of him who holds the seven messengers. Of the seven churches in his hand and walks among those seven churches. Listen when he says to them, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Wouldn't you love it if God said that to you? I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. That's a good compliment, isn't it? It's great. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And you guys know sound doctrine. You are testing false teachers against the word of God and finding them to be false. You're patient and enduring in good works. I'm impressed. Jesus is commending them for this. he says this i know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake man it's incredible and you have not grown weary verse four but i have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first remember therefore where you have fallen repent and do the dirt do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I have to confess to you as one who so often gets caught up with making sure doctrine is sound, that it is easy to forget to experience the grace that I'm proclaiming. It is easy to forget to love the Christ that I'm learning about. Easy. It is easy to ignore the Jesus that we're all working so hard for. And he's the center of all of it. He is before all things. And he's created all things. And in him all things hold together. And all things are culminating in him for the praise of his glory. And in the middle of doing ministry for him, we forget him. And he is our good news. Why are you justified? Why is it good news that you're justified? Just because you're declared righteous and you can go and have nice things? No, it's good news that you're justified because you're declared righteous and now you know that you will stand before God and you will gaze on the face of Jesus Christ and sing His praise forever. That's why it's good news. Because He is the center of it. He is the reward. He is the delight. He is the treasure. He's the one whom we ought to pursue with everything we have. And when we forget to do that as a church, God will will remove us, and I pray He will. For Mark's benefit, at the end of the letters, John has a vision of heaven. And in chapter 5, he speaks of Christ. And he says this, Then I saw on the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of living creatures and the elders. The voice of many angels. Numbering myriads and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might Let me pray. Lord, we do know that we so often forget you, Jesus. You are our good news. You were eternally preexistent, promised to us from before the foundation of the earth. We receive grace in you, Before time. Lord, in you, all the fullness of time, all of time was running toward. And Lord, it continues to in this new creation as we wait for you to return and announce your glory in such a visible way to us. Jesus, might we remember that you are our good news. You are the one that we want to see and savor. We want to delight in you. We want to declare you to the ends of the earth. Lord, make us faithful to that. Lord, help us to see you as much as we can now, although through glass darkly, Lord, although it's dim. And, Lord, make us rejoice for the day of our death. Make us look forward to it and long for it so that when our eyes close in death, Lord, we might see you for all that you are. Make us long for that, Lord, that we see you, Jesus, in your glory and your majesty. And, Lord, as we long for that, might we live every moment now for you knowing that none of these worldly treasures matter. None of it. You are our treasure in heaven. And we know if we keep our treasure with you, that if you are our treasure, that our hearts will be with you also.